Well, if you are somebody who uses the bus or the sea bus, you know what a two-day strike can do as far as sending things into chaos in some parts of Metro Vancouver and uh, very, very difficult to get around for a lot of people. So one of the big questions being asked, is it possible we will see an escalation in that transit strike? What happens if the Labour Relations Board rules that those on strike can go ahead and picket SkyTrain stations? Well, joining me to talk a little bit more about this particular labor dispute is Barry Eidlin, an associate sociology professor at McGill University, also an expert when it comes to labor and social movements. Thank you so much for taking some time this afternoon. Great to be here, Jill. Thanks for having me. When you look at this job action and the fact that we've already seen the buses and CBUS shut down for a 48-hour period, one of the big questions is how 180 workers can take labor action, can can do this, can effectively shut down a major portion of a transit system. What do you say to that? Well, it's the result of two things, skill and solidarity. So these are supervisors who are responsible for a large number of buses. They're not the drivers themselves. And so when they walk off the job, that has these ripple effects. Uh, and there's others downstream from them who can't do their work. And so that, puts, that, that stalls that work. And that's why you see the system-wide shutdown. But a key component of this is the basic foundation of any labor movement, which is solidarity, which is the workers from the other, so the, the, the TransLink drivers and the um, uh, other bus drivers vowing not to cross picket lines. So that's sort of the ABCs of unionism is never cross a picket line. Right. And so we're, we're, we're seeing that in action. And that's why we have a group of 180 workers who are able to shut down uh, bus service uh, across because they, they occupy that critical position. And when we take a look at some of the issues or the main issue that has been talked about by the union, QP Local 4500, saying that the supervisors that are on strike or that have been taking the strike action, one of the big conditions or the big concerns is they say they are not being paid. They're not being compensated the same as supervisors that work in similar positions. Is that a fair argument or one that we see very often? Absolutely. Going back to the building blocks of, of the modern labor movement, you know, uh, not just the modern labor movement, but, you know, modern social movements like feminism. I mean, equal pay for equal work is something that just has a broad resonance. Um, and of course, what we're seeing here is a common side effect of that being a big issue, which is a fight over what constitutes equal work? Because, of course, the employer is countering that, well, these workers actually are doing something different. And that's often the case that it's not, you're not dealing with often with workers doing the exact same types of work, but they're doing similar work. And they're saying, you know, this is similar enough that we should be paid the same, you know, because, and that was, you know, for example, a lot of the disputes about gender pay equity around this because women and men are often not doing the exact same work, but it's similar. And so we're trying to sort of 
have a fight over what constitutes comparable worth, essentially. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Right. And I know the company, one of the main points that the company is is putting forward is that making the argument that it's not actually similar work, that in the supervisors who are paid more are in positions where, in many cases, they would have about 30 reports, they manage people, they hire people, they fire people, whereas the supervisors in the union, the, ones, the 180 transit supervisors that are with this Q be local don't have direct reports and uh, the company has been saying that that's one of the the main things or the biggest differences in the two positions exactly and that's what that goes back to what i'm saying is that these sort of definitional struggles over what constitutes comparable work and so that's the company's position that they they they, they counter that you know they're not hiring and firing they're not they don't have as many reports um i have not seen specifics from the union about what their counter to that is but there's but you know again the issue here is that these definitional struggles are quite common and uh and regardless you know the issue here that we're dealing with is um you know a catch-up you know so that that you know the another the big issues here that the employer is saying well if they would just agree to the same percentage that all these other groups of workers did then you know the dispute would be over and that ignores the fact that this group of workers, uh, you know, regardless, I mean, they, they believe that they are falling behind and they have been falling behind. And so there needs to be a catch up amount that is exceeding that standard across the board percentage. Uh, and when we look at uh, a dispute like this, where clearly they are not able to reach a deal, the union saying the last collective agreement expired at the end of 2022, there were talks mm-hmm. uh, that led right up until the, the two-day strike. Uh, we now have a special mediator who has been appointed. How likely is it, or, or have we seen other examples when two sides are so far apart? Can a special mediator actually find common ground and find a, an agreement that works? Yes, we've seen this. It's quite common, unfortunately, in a lot of these public sector negotiations. We saw it with the federal workers last year in the, the spring. We saw it here, in, I'm in Quebec, um, you know, with the public sector workers here, where there's this real intransigence on the part of employers and really dragging their feet, because it's important to recognize here that, you know, these workers don't want to be working under expired contracts. Like, it's not good for workers who work under expired contract. At a basic level, they're falling behind on their wages because they're not getting wage increases. But there's all sorts of issues that pile up that need to be addressed in terms of working conditions that need to be sort of just updated that aren't getting updated. And so when you have these delays, it's almost invariably the result of employer foot dragging. And, you know, here we have, a, you know, Vince Reddy is an experienced negotiator. You know, he's, he's, he's uh, you know, well-respected by all sides, which is uh, a, a good thing. Uh, you know, but but ultimately, you know, what, what has to happen here is uh, in it shows the importance of the strike, right, that, that it really resor- have to resort to that level of pressure to get the employers to actually come to some sort of agreement. And that's really what we've been seeing over and over and over again, is that it's really only in the face of a serious strike threat that. Uh, employers will actually come to the table and come to a deal. Can binding arbitration be helpful in scenarios like this, or is or is it something where the two sides are far apart and and would never would be unlikely to uh, agree to that anyway? 
I think that it's important not to rely on binding arbitration as a substitute for an effective strike threat, because what that often ends up doing is simply sweeping issues under the rug uh, and not actually um, getting them dealt with. And, you know, that, 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 you know, the, the reason that the right to strike is enshrined in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms as a basic freedom association is because of its critical role in getting parties to agreement. And any and efforts to, um, you know, to sidestep that, you know, while they may sort of in the short term deal with the immediate disruption, often end up causing more problems down the road. And one more more question about wages or about salaries, because the number, I think, is what is getting a lot of attention in that Coast Mountain Bus Company, uh, the company saying that QP's demands work out to about a 20 to 25 percent increase for all of the positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the company saying they've put forward the author uh, the offer, sorry, that was closer to 13 uh, percent. People will hear those numbers and there are not a lot of people, I think, that uh, have been given a 25 percent increase uh, ever, especially not recently. What do the numbers do as far as public support and 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 when you're dealing with numbers so high? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's important to keep this in perspective of issues that I think a lot of Canadians understand, which is that we've had this, well, we've had in the past few years, most significantly the cost of living crisis, but in the context of four decades of basically stagnant wage growth, and so we're in a moment now with, uh, you know, coming out of the pandemic and then with the tighter labor market where workers are feeling that they can push back more and actually win more. And we've seen that with other groups of workers um, and, uh, you know, not, not just in Canada, but also in the U.S. as well, like with the auto workers strike and other, other, other groups. And so I think that, uh, and that has that can have ripple effects, right? And so I think that it. And so I think that there's one perspective that you could see where it's like, well, those workers are asking for something that I have never been able to get. So therefore, why should they even dare ask for that? Which is an, a, an approach that you've seen certainly. But there's another way that it can go, which is that workers can see like, oh, okay, they're fighting to sort of play catch up after having all these decades of falling behind. That's a good thing because that means that maybe that could that could also have ripple effects in my workplace too, or that can encourage other workers to sort of, you know, fight for more as well. And so, you know, how that breaks down is of course uh, you know, a, a, it varies from situation to situation, but it's important to understand that it's not a sort of, it's not inherently going to be one way or the other. All right. Well, I know a lot of people are watching and waiting to see what happens next with this dispute. Barry Eidland, thank you so much for taking the time today. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.